On today's episode of the Trauma-Informed Podcast with your host, Jeff Friedman, we have Jennifer, and Jennifer is a uh, graduate student in uh, psychiatric rehabilitation counseling. She also has a wealth of experience as a uh, mobile crisis worker. And uh, Jennifer and I uh, have a very interesting conversation about um, a uh, leftist perspective on psychotherapy and mental health. Go uh, have a listen. So Jennifer, could you you could tell the listeners where you're calling from and how, how did you how did you get acquainted with the the leftist mental health subreddit? I am a so I live in the Pacific Northwest and I am a currently a student in a master's counseling master's in counseling program and I also work in uh, crisis mental health crisis services. I do mobile outreach. Of course, that has changed significantly since the pandemic, but I am lucky to still have that job right now. And I work full-time. I go to school full-time and I'm just starting my practicum this quarter, which is again, entirely new because everything has been moved online. So it's basically like we're all being forced to suddenly set up our own private practice in our homes for the first time ever. And this is also our first counseling experience ever. So it's a very wild, unique time, and I've always been interested in left left politics and left theory, Marxism, just because I was raised in a um, pretty conservative household. And when I was kind of in my late teens, I think I started to kind of, I don't know, just become a little more educated, a little more open to learning about the world, which is, I don't mean that to sound like, you know, people who don't are, are bad or something, but... For whatever reason, I, I became more interested in just history and other cultures. And it when you, I feel like when you really study history, you really start to realize like how the current conditions are a direct result of repeated, consistent patterns of oppression throughout our human history. And I think it's it's really uh, a disservice to disregard all of that in the psychotherapy context. So I am a mod of of the subreddit called Psychotherapy Leftists. I did not start the sub, but I was asked to moder- start uh, becoming a moderator a few weeks ago, and it has been. Oh, awesome. congratulations! Yeah, I love the <laughs> sub. It's fabulous. Yeah, there was also. I mean, I literally was just like this morning. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but I was just like you know, maybe I'll just bring the sub subreddit up on my screen and just kind of like talk about like, or, you know, talk, you know, mention the things that come up that I think are really salient. So how long has it been in existence? I just came across it. Yeah. Within the last month or so. Yeah. I was shocked to see that it's only, it was created at December 30th, 2019. So so it is pretty new. Pretty new. Yeah. Yeah. Which is wild because like, this is something that is extensively discussed and studied, at least in the field of counseling, like these issues of equity and injustice and social justice. And like, it's been incorporated into like the tenets of counseling as a profession, but still we have this fear and nervousness around examining things like marginalized identities and race and sexism and socioeconomic oppression and classism and all of that. And yeah, well, that just flies in the face of what we know about what good mental health is. Well, can I, let me, let me jump in on the topic. Sorry to interrupt you here. Um, 
that, that just that comes to mind in this area in terms of leftist politics and, and psychotherapy, mental health is, I feel it's been a hot topic for, for, for quite some time now, the whole, in terms of leftist spaces, in terms of either, I mean, depending on where you stand, getting rid of prisons or, or reforming prisons and, and sort of ending mass incarceration. I feel it's challenging to get a lot of leftist folks to, to examine the role, the role of the mental health uh, system, in particular the public mental health system and, and private mental hospitals. And, and, and from my, from my vantage point, that they they're not all that different from prisons. Some of the same companies that operate detention, like immigrant detention centers, as well as prisons, also operate mental health hospital facilities. Absolutely, and and just just throwing this out there. The uh-huh. Multnomah, Multnomah County Jail in downtown Portland uh-huh. is one of the largest psychiatric facilities on the West Coast. Right. And that should tell you something. And like I speak from personal experience, the mental health care they provide there is not the worst. Like it's I'm not trying to say that it's like <laughs> it's it just says something when the care that you receive in a jail is not like, you know, the you know, the worst of the worst, which is what you would expect. Right. And I'm not trying to say like, you know, oh, I don't know. I, I, it occurs to me that this sounds weird. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I've literally, so I've worked in, I've worked in uh, forensic settings, not in, uh-huh. in jails, but I've worked with individuals with, with a history and current criminal justice system involvement, folks who are on parole. And like, I have coordinated care with, with folks at the jail and like, at a certain, you know, there have been times where I'm like, wow, they have like a good psychiatrist there. Like, mm-hmm. and like, that says something to me, you know what I mean? Like the, and, and the people who are in these jails are there for so-called crimes that are a direct result of their so-called symptoms. And it's just, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. That- well, maybe I, I'll maybe, maybe make a little bit more uh, refined. My, my focus here is that, um, that I've heard a lot of folks in these kind of spaces say that uh, I think you were saying something a little bit different, but like for example, I've heard people in Miami say that the the Miami the the jail here is the biggest psychiatric facility in Miami Dade County that that they need to to divert the the folks there to uh, psychiatric facilities. But but sort of my 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 opinion is that it sort of needs to be sort of a third option that the, the both those systems are kind of broken that that they're not really they're not really getting at the root of the problem why people get into these places in the first place. And, and that, to me, I guess that, that's where I see it connecting to the, the leftist kind of ideas of inequalities and just how you deal with healthcare and housing, things like just providing people with their basic, getting their basic needs met. Okay, excuse me. Right. And, and you make an excellent point. But as soon as you said that, my first thought was, okay, but what is that third option going to be, right? And I think that's the that's the key question. And I think this really strikes at the heart of what our, you know, what are our values going to be as a society, right? I mean, it those values have already been determined, right? But but what are the values that I want to make more um, prevalent in the sort of solidarity network that I want to build, right? And those values are that. I don't want another freaking system. You know what I mean? Like, that's not the problem. The systems are the problem. Why are we having to create more systems when we know that the problem is at the, like the basic level? Like, it's not 
difficult to just provide housing. Like there is so much, there is such a huge, massive amount of over, I can't even think of the words. I'm sorry. Let me back that up. There are so many empty homes and so many homeless people. It is, it makes no sense to anybody in any, in any rational sense. And so, you know, I, I totally, I get what you're saying and I agree with you. Like, yes. But at the same time that just recall that that suggests that that suggests that there should be a there, that there naturally will be some other kind of sorting system. Right. That, that's a good point. I, I haven't yeah. thought of it that way. I, but and to me, that's kind of the, the, the macro issue here is the sorting of people and the deciding of who's human and who isn't and who's going to be dehumanized and who is going to be given dignity and who right. is going to be allowed the dignity of risk and who is going to not, who is going to be sheltered and imp- basically imprisoned their whole life um, right. in, in ways that I think you're describing. I don't know if that sounds a little more. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Sandy Bloom who's a psychiatrist in um Philadelphia, and she's a big. She actually didn't say this phrase, but but it, it was. I actually I heard her. Speak, you've probably have heard of it. I don't know if you've heard of this term that it's it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. Kind of. Right. Yeah, and the way she gave this presentation, she talked about how that that kind of catchphrase came about, and she was a psychiatrist at some. I don't remember the exact type of the setting it was, but I think it was some kind of some kind of residential setting in for people with mental health issues in Philadelphia. And she said she went to some workshop on, on trauma, I think by the, the interesting thing, I don't know if you've probably heard of her, Judith Herman. The name doesn't ring a bell, but I mean I'm well, you probably know the book. I, it's the book the, the book it's it's escaping me right now. I'm gonna look it up. Trauma and recovery. It's like a, a seminal trauma book. Have you heard of that okay. one? I think you would like it. It's but anyway, but it so basically she was going to some workshop, I think, by her and then maybe even Bessel Vanderkoek, and she oh. said she got all excited about these ideas and trying to make the the agency more trauma informed. And then this this social worker, one of the meetings, he was just trying to like distill what she was saying, and he basically said that it's not what's uh not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, yeah. but uh, that's absolutely true. I think as a person who is, you know, coming from a person who is a mod of psychotherapy leftists, I would ask beyond that is what has happened to you? And the bigger question is, why is that happening? Why is that continuing to happen? We have so much research on the ACEs study, adverse childhood experience. We know the impact of child abuse. We know why child abuse happens. We know the circumstances under which child abuse happens. And this happens under these material conditions. Right. I know that's a buzzword, material conditions. Mm -hmm. To explain to anybody who isn't familiar, material conditions refers to things like, do you have a house? Do you have plumbing in your home? Do you have a car? Do you have health insurance? Your actual conditions, are you able to get your basic needs met? And so many people are not able to get those material conditions to a point where they have an, an you know, acceptable quality of living or standard of living. And, you know, so I think, and so much of those issues, so many of those issues result in these sequelae, to use the buzzword, uh, these outcomes that result in things like child abuse and child poverty. I mean, it's no mistake that the poorest, most oppressed demographics in anywhere are children and the elderly, the people with the least power. And, you know, it's no mistake that people who and, and you know, to to 
bring up another phrase that really strikes with me is the one hurt people hurt people, you know, and, and my question is, why are people getting hurt to begin with? You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? <laughs> I, I just wanted to backtrack one thing I said, the reason I also brought up the, 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 the Sandy Bloom is uh, I, I heard her speak and that, and that one of the things that she struck me about that third option. And she also, yeah, brought up capitalism and, and some other stuff too. I don't really remember her saying what the third option uh, was. I just liked that, that she was saying that we need to get beyond this kind of, uh, I see, see this shift. It's like, Oh, jails are bad. We need to get people treatment. But, 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 again, but I agree. It's about the third option I think is about looking at those material conditions and, and, and right. addressing that. Right. I, and yeah, I, yeah, I I totally am with I'm on board with that. My only hesitation is again making it a so-called option instead of making it a um, right. a holistic and bottom-up process that right. you know there's no need for us to be separating out people who are struggling with mental health and people who are not because we all have mental health. You know, as much as I hate that term for many many reasons, but and and it's and and we and we continue to have this reinforced by research. We know that, for example, I, I mean, so one other thing, I am a certified psychiatric rehabilitation practitioner. So I'm mm -hmm. really, really into the recovery model, psychiatric right. rehabilitation. I really love working with people with psychiatric disabilities, and I'm studying disability in uh, grad school. My specialty is going to be rehabilitation counseling. So that's kind of where I'm coming from on this. What we know is that recovery is about going back to what, you know, quote unquote, normal life. It's not about going to, you know, there for many people, there is no place between the home and the hospital, their home and the hospital or the street and the hospital. And it's like, how can we build something there that isn't, oh, you go to your place now, like, oh, go to that day center now. I don't know. It's there has to be some kind of meaning to it and something that brings us together because we are relational creatures. And again, all of these things are validated by evidence and hard science. This is not woo woo stuff. This is not stuff that is not founded in reality or science or evidence that the that the community claims to really need so much and need so much support for. We have the evidence. But I, I wanted to, uh, one of the things you mentioned um, earlier when we were emailing, was, um, just correct me if I'm wrong, did you say that you work with the S, did you use that abbreviation? That abbreviation and <laughs> thank you for calling me out on. Oh, I'm not trying to call. I'm trying to call <laughs> no, you no, in. No, no, I, I, no, thank you. I, I know. <laughs> I, I just want. I just wanted to hear about your take on that. And I mean, yes. I think it's something. It's easy to use these terms because exactly. we. Exactly. Yeah, convenience. Right. It's so, like a. Yeah, if you want me to be let's so actually, if you don't mind, I'll be real with you. Like what my my thought process was. I honestly, I saw that you were an LCSW. And my mind went to, okay, all the social workers I've worked with, okay, these are folks that I've worked with, you know, in the courts, in the hospitals, in the super acute high, you know, settings, the folks who are the most disadvantaged, the folks who are really working deeply in these really embedded systems, right? And so I'm thinking, okay, what is the language that is going to bring me you know, what is, what is going to communicate who I work with in the most concise way. And I will admit, I absolutely relied on jargon and I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think another piece too, was that I think I, I thought, you know, I, I wanted to, <laughs> I definitely noticed that we're on opposite sides of the country too. So 
my thought was, you know, I have no idea what this person's background is. Like, I know you have a private practice, but I didn't, you know, I hadn't. Yeah, I guess I relied on using language that I thought would be most broadly understood. And I'm really glad that you brought that up, though, because that is a catch-all term and language has its uses. My only beef about the, ter- the term, I, mean, I think one of the problems with creating the new terminology is people don't really know necessarily know what you're talking about and you have to explain it to them. And the thing I don't really... Yeah, that's the thing is I mean a very specific thing. Like that's the thing is I'm not, I, I, you know, I only use that when I really am talking about a very specific kind of population. When you say that I know who you're talking about, yeah, yeah my beef with the term is that it's just sort of, sort of to me implies that people don't recover. I mean, that's, that's exactly. sort of my beef with the term. That's, exactly, exactly. And as you know, as you obviously, you know that they do, and it's, it's actually more the norm than the exception, but I, right. My my vantage point is a lot of the more so. I mean, this is my bias, but I think more so that the, the than the actual so called uh, genetic biochemical disorder. If you if you believe in that, it, that I mean, the systems keep people locked, make it hard for people to recover. They ultimately, they keep them in the system. And they keep them in those categories and they keep them in yeah. those categories for life, as you, as you described. Yeah. I recognize that I'm speaking personally for much for myself, but I have been a consumer of mental health services. I have a diagnosis. I have been diagnosed with depression and, you know, doesn't fall into that category, but I'm just trying to speak only for myself right now. But for me, in many ways, that experience has brought meaning to my life. It has brought more depth and breadth of experience to my life. I know I'm a very unique case, but I just think it's, you know, there's something to be said for the sort of integration of experiences that a person has into their kind of meaning making of their life, if that makes sense. You know, as you know, in many cultures, things like visions and and, and right. hearing things are extremely culturally valuable. They're a source of wisdom and knowledge. And I think in for for some people, again, not across the board, but for me personally, like I have found a lot of meaning in the things that I have had to fight for and how I've had to fight for myself in my own personal struggle. So I don't know. That's just another thing that that is part of what I feel about recovery is, you know, just because you're in recovery or you've recovered doesn't mean that you never had that experience or that it didn't have an impact on you or that it didn't mean something. Or I would say, or is it still not, or it still could be ongoing. Exactly. And still impacting your life now, still impacting your family, still impacting your community and so on and so forth. Exactly. I also want to back up that you you mentioned that the statement, the hurt people hurt people. And I, uh, I like this statement, but the, the the other thing I would add to that is that based on my own research that you see, and I imagine you would relate to this, that a lot of hurt people are, are often some of the most like caring, empathetic people that are actually going to more, there's sort of this connection between empathy and people that have experienced trauma. Have you, have you observed that too? That like people Absolutely. that... Are, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that ties exactly into what I was just saying was that, you know, of of course, these are horrific, painful experiences that people have that are trauma, that represent trauma, but they are adding to the depth and breadth of our experiences. And they add, you know, not in themselves, but 
from what happens to what happens afterward, how we how we grow in response to them, the the kinds of communities that we may con may connect with that we wouldn't have connected with if we hadn't gone through those experiences, those kinds of things I think are really really valuable and I don't know I I just really think those are super important and and I mean for example me personally this pandemic has brought me closer to the, I feel has brought me closer to my global community than it, than I have ever felt ever. And that's incredibly ironic because I'm physically in my home. Right. Right. So yeah, I just, I just feel like there's, there's value in recognizing that those extreme states and extreme experiences can still be meaningful. And I think in our, our culture of wanting to commodify and package and package those kinds of experiences or make them go away is to our detriment. I'm thinking of the hearing voices movement. I found this really great, really great. I, I do not have that experience myself, but I've worked with many people who, who hear voices. And I thought it was really interesting. I found a guide to a, a guide online for people who hear voices and it, and it talked about relating with your voices and, and trying to start to realize that your voices are saying something for a reason. They're not just like saying like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you uh, for no reason, right? There, there's something, you know, all behavior, and, and this is my personal thing is all behavior is expressing a need, whether that behavior is a thought, a feeling, an action, you know, I'm using the broad terminology for behavior. Right. If you're having, and so I, I've just heard positive stories anyway, positive anecdotes of people who hear voices and have tried to take a more relational understanding with them and try to be curious about what is the voice expressing? What is it possibly saying that I need right now that, that, and that need is not getting met. I think actually there's a Ted talk about it that maybe I'll link you to if, if that, yeah. Yeah. Is it by um, um, Eleanor Lundgren? She did... I remember she start. she was like, they started when it was, she was talking about how when they started, they were just narrating her actions like mm -hmm. neutrally. And then they became more and more emotional. And then she was like, why is this change happening? Right. And she noticed that like when she heard these voices, she would get more anxious and then it would turn into a cycle. Right. And it would turn into this like positive feedback loop and she would become more distressed, more, you know, ex her so-called symptoms would be exacerbated. Right. But she describes this process through which she learns to kind of relate with the voices and things have been able to kind of become more you know, yeah, I just, I just think there's many, many ways in which our bodies tell us the, about the needs that we have that a lot of times we don't listen to. And a lot of times that psychotherapy in the Western world, in the Western concept context does not allow us to. Well, I, I, I wanted to ask you about how, how has it been in graduate school now with, are you with expressing some of the, your the leftist kind of ideas? It is, it has been an experience interesting experience. I mean, grad school for anybody is, is wild. Yeah. It's so yeah, I've been, I'm in my, I'm like and nearing the sort of end of my second year and we're about to start to be doing the actual practical things, practicum and internship. And it's like, I've spent the last two years kind of steeping in this in these really, really awesome classes about multicultural counseling and 
race and, you know, what I, what I like to call racist scientism, because it's not science, it's an ideology. And I'm, re- I'm referring to kind of like the history of like eugenics and, and those kinds of things, which ultimately led into the study of psychology, the historical kind of perspective. You know, I've learned about things like that. We, you know, I've really done a lot of work about learning about anti-racism. I've done a lot of my own personal work about, about my own privilege and my own identities. And then suddenly I get to, you know, the point where it's like, okay, it's time for you to actually be a therapist now. And I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, cause now it's, it's like, I don't know. Now it's like, I'm not just in the classroom. I'm like actually being scrutinized and watched. And, you know, I got an, we got an email the other day that was like, please let us know if you want to share like your identities or, or interests, if you have any, so that we you know if we get a client who says, I would rather have a therapist who blah, 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 then we can give them to you. And I'm like, I've gone back and forth so many times on whether I want to respond to that email. Not, not that I would say anything about me being like left wing or anything, but like even just putting things like that I identify as a woman or that I identify, uh, you know, some things that I would like to put that would be really cool, I think, to put and would be relevant would be that I'm a queer fat woman. But I don't know how I feel about putting that because I don't know how that's going to be taken. They say that they're only going to use that for that purpose. But honestly, like I have so little trust in them and in institutions in general these days. Like This whole, you know, the last two years have just really proven how these ivory towers and these institutions are just so paper thin and meaningless. And it's like, do I want to take a risk where I could be, and you know, and, and I I'm taking a risk right now being on this podcast. Right. Do I want to take that risk when, you know, we're constantly being told, Oh, this is a small community. Be careful. Be sure you're being professional at all times. You know, we have to sign these papers that, that give you a list of what they call the dispositions. And these are your expected behaviors. And you know, so on and so forth. And it's like, yeah, it's, I don't know. There's just a lot of feeling like I'm being put in my place for, for no real discernible reason, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it, to me, it feels like another buzzword. Like I feel everybody has their own opinion about it, but, I, but I've learned over the years, the, uh, the, the ivory tower institutions of higher learnings are often sort of operate under that kind of neoliberal ideology and they are, are very threatened in anything that, that tries to, to disrupt them from that kind of position. I feel that they, they're also the, they'll sort of squash anything that, that tries to. Which is, which is ironic considering <laughs> I've spent the last two years watching amazing YouTube videos and lectures and, you know, read amazing books assigned to me through these classes, through the university, Right. you know, have learned so much about Marxist and critical theory or Marxism and critical theory and critical race theory and feminist, feminist counseling approaches. And then I'm finding myself feeling nervous (laughs) about saying that, you know, I'm interested in working with, you know, such and such population or that I identify as such and such identity. Like, you know, it's just this constant push pull of like, be vulnerable, but don't be not too much. Right. Like, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, and, and it's like, you have to be vulnerable in in a controlled way and a calculated way. Exactly. There's a very, very narrow 
idea of what you have to be polite about being vulnerable. Exactly. Exactly. And, and professional and, you know, and there's so much unsaid in that word professionalism. There's a lot of, you know, sexist and racist connotations to what professionalism is. And I work, I work in rehabilitate, you know, I, my specialty is going to be rehabilitation counseling, which a lot, a large, large, large portion of that is helping people with disabilities get back into work. So I, that is really difficult for me struggling with that because there's so much, there's so many oppressive practices in that whole, the disability um, and accommodations and employment. And so, yeah, that part, I feel a little bit more comfortable identifying as like, you know, more, you know, left-leaning because it's more of a justice thing. You know what I mean? But yeah. But actually on this topic that I think is relating to your work is an idea I've had from um, from a mental health perspective and also more of a leftist perspective, the idea about how and I, I think in in mental health recovery, there's an idea that 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 work in of itself is therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some streams of thought from some more like kind of left spaces is that sort of like sort of this kind of that like that eventually moving to this sort of post work culture that maybe that work is going to have how relevant will work be if you know in the future of ever with more automation and things like that that what are your thoughts about that about sort of the the value of work i feel it's often pushed for the mental health um, folks that it's just that work in, in and of itself is therapeutic even if they're not really even if they're i guess collecting government assistance they don't really need the work to to survive but the idea of just working as sort of a therapeutic for like dignity purposes what's your thoughts on that so yes, I on its face, I absolutely believe that work is is therapeutic. I have seen it happen. I've I've been a supported employment specialist. I am absolutely on board with that. What I am confl- what I have feelings about is what the word work means and what we're talking about when we mean work when we say work. You know, because absolutely, you know, living your life in a meaningful way is very and doing what you like to do with your time and your energy is very, very different than uh, selling your labor for a wage, right? Right. Um, Unfortunately, our society is set up in such a way that those two things are very, are, you know, either are the same or overlap significantly for most people, if you're lucky. (laughs) But, and, and it, it, especially with people who, with disabilities and people who have these marginalized identities, the, you have the, the, the added layer of, of the power aspect of, you know, being a person with a disability in a job is being, is, is significantly different in terms of like power dynamics than being a person in a job without a disability, right? Like you inherently have less power because you are holding that identity. And so I think what I'm reminded of immediately when you said is, you know, work is, again, there's this different, there's this very different idea of work versus I'm reminded not to, I I love this book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. If you've read it, it's it's read a little bit of it, uh, but I need to revisit. I know it's a classic, but but yeah. uh, I never really got that into it. But I know Friere. Yeah, there's just this one concept in there that I really really love that I think is really what sh- what we're talking about when at least what I'm talking about when I say that yes, work is therapeutic. He talks about this concept of the vocation of becoming more fully human, mm-hmm. and I I love that he uses the word vocation because it is, it is an action. It is, it is a 
practice. It is an ongoing thing, right? And it is something that we're doing for a reason to keep ourselves going. And, you know, I, I was just kind of Googling it to try to sum it up a little bit, but uh, like, I just found this quote, a person manifests one, one's ontological vocation of becoming more fully human. When such a person demonstrates virtues such as courage, reverence, tolerance, trustworthiness, diligence, generosity, strength, decisiveness, simplicity, and deliberateness in speech. I mean, I know that's a lot of words, but I think that that to me just kind of sums up like being the person that you want to be in the world and finding meaning in that and being genuine and having that genuine experience of being a human instead of this dehumanized vision of work and drudgery and exploitation and extraction of wealth um, that we have associated with work. Right. Well, I guess what I, well, I guess what I was at with it too is, is that uh, I see you're saying you have a little. Yeah, I said you have a little bit of a different uh, definition of what work is, but but I guess what, what I was coming at with this is that you know, we've moved to a different kind of post-war culture. That I think with leisure activities that some people could get similar, or even if maybe they still do now, they get some of this, the derive some of the same uh, virtues that they they get from work. I think that the fears associated with automation and the the concerns about, oh my gosh, what are we going to do if we get to a post-work society? That is all based on this myth of scarcity. And we do not, you know, the, these this myth of scarce resources, which again is rooted in the myths that are propagated by, by capitalism. We are not running out of food. We are not running out of land. We are not running out of air. We are not overpopulated. And we do not need to like reduce the population or kill off humans to save the earth. Those are just, <laughs> you know, those are, those are, those are like eco-fascist talking points. Right. And those are ideas that are natural. Those naturally follow from the tenets of capitalism. That's a logical outcome of capitalism, of capitalism is the death of humans. Like it's a right. freaking death cult, you know? <laughs> And I don't know about you, but I want to live. <laughs> I was talking about, I mean, that, that oh, if, if leisure fills some of the same virtues in a, in a post-war culture uh, for mental right. health benefits, that, that whereas yeah. that doesn't yeah, have to I, be necessarily work, per se. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that strikes at the at the core of kind of your the fact that you that people have different ideas about what is what creates meaning and what, you know, that also makes me think of, you know, well, why does, you know, you say leisure. And well, what is leisure? Is it, does it necessarily have to be unproductive to be leisure or does it necessarily have to be relaxing or, you know, indulgent or any of those kinds of words that we associate with leisure um, or recreation? I get uh, very interested in how the language shapes how we think about these things. And just because, you know, the word leisure just brings up all these other kind of things that are. I mean, it may not be the best word for, to describe yeah. what I'm saying, but that's just and what I comes to mind is a, is a contrast to work. What's like the opposite Absolutely. of work and what would people be doing if, if they didn't have to work? And uh... Well, I mean, I think we, you know, I think you bring up an interesting point, the opposite of work. I think, you know, the opposite of work as it is right now would be not working for another person, like using your own energy and your own labor for your own purposes or, Right, that's usually more enjoyable. Right. Yes, exactly. Like those two things are, they naturally follow, right? Whereas under capitalism, they're divorced from each other. And like, that's just so not how humans work. Like we're relational beings. And I've, I've had similar, similar 
kind of experiences with people who have really, really, really strong beliefs that are not shared. And there's just, you know, there's there are ways to treat people with more dignity than that. And it's not hard. Yeah. And another thing that comes to mind, I'm curious your take on this, is that and if you, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the history of the whole mental health system and like the deinstitutionalization and that kind of stuff. That I mean, you've talked a lot of like psychiatrists or, or even, I guess, some like more like psychiatric social workers will say that, oh, that the that the people with schizophrenia and stuff, they do a lot better now because the medications are a lot better and that there's less side effects. And But I think one of the reasons they actually end up doing better is that they're not in the, they're, they're in the community more and, the, and that they're, this medical, these medical things aren't as reinforced. So like somebody that hears voices every time you meet them or you're hearing voices kind of in a way, to me, it reinforces the idea of having voices. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, well, so when you say, when you said, you said something about schizophrenic people or uh-huh. schizophrenia doing better, did you mean like an individual or people in general or people in your, in that person's practice? Or what did you mean by that? No, just in general. I mean, I've heard those sweeping terms that like compared to like the, uh, what's the one uh, like before Haldol, I forget the name of it. The oh. Oh, okay. So I think I think I get what you're saying. So yeah. you're saying basically like with these advances, they've become yes. more functional maybe. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yes. Whatever functional means, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Easily integrated. Or... Yeah. Yeah, okay. I get what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I'm on board with that. I, I you know, I have seen community integration as a practice well no my, my my i guess maybe i wasn't clear about the point i was making is i think it's more less about the medication but more about the the idea of recovery and and having the people spending less time in the hospitals that, that's more the point I was, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah absolutely but from a from a reductionistic perspective a lot of people say oh it's because the medications are a lot more yeah i mean you know, I, I'm sure there's a grain of truth to that. There is, there's a grain of truth, but and it's, I have uh, seen, and yeah. I have seen, and I, I have absolutely seen people experience a really great improvement in, in, in their distress levels with things like the Invega injection, who people who have trouble taking medications every day. And, you know, that said, medications are not for everybody. I absolutely respect somebody who doesn't want to take medications, but also, you know, medications do work for some people and they are always making advances. And so again, there is a grain of truth to that to say that it's, you know, you know, we shouldn't be giving it more credit than it, than it deserves. So, because right, it's, it's, ultimately a tool of controlling somebody's consciousness you know whether that person wants that to be happening that you know i'm all you know if somebody doesn't want to be having psychosis i'm all in, i want to help them right but people have the right to have psychosis like i literally was on a team once and everybody was fighting about whether we needed to call the hospital for this person and finally one of the social workers on the team was like this person has a right to be psychotic and we were all like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, and uh, yeah, so that idea, it, it, like, yes, it helps people be more, quote unquote, functional. But what does that really mean? Does that mean, you know, still creating amazing art and beauty that we know people with mental illness, so-called mental illness are able and capable to create that is 
more that it that has that comes from an amazing depth of experience that so, that few people get to experience you know does that mean sorry i got off track yeah just yeah there's it's there's just so much more nuance to it and it and it depends on what you're uh, what you're going for i guess so of course healthcare providers are going to say oh medications are great because you get to just throw pills at it you know but that's not everybody right <laughs> Right. And, um, okay. So since since you've uh, been on uh, Mad in America and stuff, what's your, yeah, what what are your, I guess, what are your thoughts about, uh, this is kind of a hot button issue. People have different views upon it. The forced, forced treatment, involuntary treatment commitments and the uh, outpatient kind of uh, like outpatient sort of mandatory treatment. I, yeah, you're right. It's a very hot button topic. And I, I have some experience working with folks under commitment. I do not have a ton of experience, so I don't want to overstep my bound my bounds. My personal thoughts on it as somebody who has worked mobile outreach in people's homes and helped them work with their trial visit monitors and called people at the state hospital every day and people I am actually people on forensic diversion, people on a hold what did they call it? It was called a, I don't remember what it's called, but yeah, I mean, I don't know the right answer is really what it comes down to. I, I don't know what the right answer is. I don't think. No, it's, it's not a right or wrong answer. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying like, it's, it's hard for me to come to a final, you know, opinion on it across. The well, actually, let me make it maybe more political. So, I mean, I've heard, um. Have you ever, from like, from uh, some libertarian perspectives that it's, uh, I've heard that it's sort of, I forget exactly what the right you'd be, but a lot of libertarians are against, uh, and then the guy, Tom Saz, uh, psychiatrist. I absolutely have his book right here on my shelf. It's called Ideology and Insanity, Essays on the Psychiatric Dehumanization of Man. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Zaz talks (laughs) about problems in living. And I love that. It's so funny. I'm just flipping through it here. Criminals are surely ill, say the behavioral scientists and their followers. Flipping through it. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely, uh, you know, again, I, I recognize that. I hear it. I agree. There are absolutely people who become hospitalized because of BS censorship and political right. kind of, you know, reputation assassination kind of reason. I'm immediately thought of Adrian's. Oh, my God. What was his name? It was a gentleman who was trying to expose issues at the NYPD, and they basically forcefully came into his home, illegally detained him, and sent him to the psychiatric hospital, um, where he was kept there against his will illegally for weeks, and nobody nobody knew where he was. Adrian Schoolcraft. Thank you. Adrian Schoolcraft. If you want to Google that, there's a This American Life episode about it. He has he was an NYPD cop. And so this absolutely happens. It is and it's fucking unconscionable i'm sorry but it, yeah it's it's absolutely a tool of the state in in some ways you know I- well, well actually i mean on my mad in america interview the topic was about and the person who was interviewing me i knew her prior and she she's very sort of like considers herself a, a psychiatric hospital uh abolitionist of sorts and i was trying to make a case that that that, that there could be some better uses for the uh, the involuntary uh, commitments uh, but she wasn't really 
I agree with me. It was one of the things in practice I've seen is that I'm sure you've heard these statistics that that people with mental health, but diagnosed mental health conditions are, are, are more likely to become victims of violence than, than perpetrators themselves. But Absolutely. I feel that there can be a sort of a fine line of there, there are folks that are violent that I feel that maybe the, the like a psychiatric intervention would be a way for them to prevent them from hurting people. But I don't know that the psychiatric system ever really is effectively used for that purpose, or maybe it really, it's not really a droll. I don't know. But. Yeah. Wait, I didn't hear that last part. It's maybe a what? Ma- a maybe it's not used for the, or maybe that's not the role or shouldn't be the role. A role. Yeah, I see. I see. I'm absolutely in agreement with you. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, very tough problem. I have visited people in the hospital and I said to myself, I am very glad that they are. Here. I have visited people in the hospital and I have said, why is this person here? You know, it's absolutely. <sighs> Yeah, whether the hospital is a good model for that, I have no idea. Do I have better ideas? No, <laughs> but it's absolutely a problematic thing, and it, and it's used to as a tool of control. Not to mention the the outcomes that are disproportionately detrimental to certain communities. Um, oh yeah, that, that's a good topic to to bring up, and I'm sure you're familiar with this stuff. That like. Uh... Usually, non-white people are more likely to get more severe um, uh, diagnoses in the public mental health system, and but and, and that's also an issue I've tried to, to get more uh, people of color to be interested in. And often, I get the backlash that it's like that. Oh, that that the problem is that that you know that primarily like black people need to be more open to the therapy and, and mental health services and. Uh, and and I think one of the reasons they're often not open to it is usually that their encounter with mental health services or whatever the, the child protective services in that neighborhood and they're very authoritarian and I, I I can understand why they don't want to have anything to do with mental health services. But. Mm-hmm. I just am reminded of of a of a book. I'm going to look it up really really briefly. Sue and Sue, who wrote? What did they write? Cultural competence. It's Daryl Wing Sue is a multicultural kind of counseling researcher and counselor. And yeah, he his some of his um, stuff in his book really talks about how many of these kind of cultural differences, whatever you want to call it, are explicitly pathologized. I mean, and to say to say things like, oh, they're resistant. Oh, they're this, that, the other thing, completely disregarding the thousands of years of history leading up to this moment. You point out a kind of a current, which is absolutely relevant, of course. What's that? You bring up kind of a current, more current example of, of child protective services and, and those kinds right. of systems now. But, you know, this is intergenerational. You know, Black women's bodies and, and, and their children have been stolen from them, genocided, murdered for... Right. And so, you know, absolutely, it makes sense. And... Yeah, it's it's I don't know. Observe the there's been more of a kind of a neoliberal trying to make uh, uh, mental health cool and therapy cool in right. non-white spaces. Uh, right, 
but then there's but then naturally that because of because of the context it's going to be commoditized and it's going to be commodified of course against the you know that's that's it's still rooted in this objectivism and this this individualism Oh, 100%. And and we are not individual beings. At the end of the day, we are relational beings. You know, we need other people and we need people to listen to us. And, you know, it's... I mean, I've even seen it. I don't remember exactly where I came across it. Something almost like... I mean, this could maybe sound a little bit bad. So if somebody's offended by this, it's... I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I've seen it almost in some of these non-white kind of talking about therapy and stuff. It's like... It's like sort of a status symbol to show that you've made it, that you have you have a therapist and, you, and that kind of thing. But... That's an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I can, I mean, well, actually, no, now that you mentioned that I have heard that from, yeah. as sort of a, from a sort of a millennial joke angle. Like, okay. oh, I finally, I finally got insurance. I can finally see a therapist. Okay. Well, so, that's yeah, similar, that's but, but it's more of like uh, right. a little bit step further than that right 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 yeah in that different context that's interesting right because it is a very different kind of yeah i did i have not heard that but i'm just thinking about it that's interesting yeah Um, because yeah it does mean something right if you you know i'm sort of saying that basically more like the lot like you're more bougie bourgeoisie now that you're right the marker of being bougie essentially (laughs) exactly and you know yeah (laughs) I'm just thinking about it. Sorry. I'm chewing that over in my mind. That's really interesting though. Oh, shit. <laughs> Table. <laughs> so actually going to back in different books, I mean, what, I'm not sure if you're of this one on, on, a, on a, a kind of leftist mental health uh, focus. I would say it's one of the best books I read in, the, in this area called Capitalism Realism. Oh, I have not. Oh, well, if, if you have it, I think yeah, I, I would say it's a uh, must read and, I mean, the guy you mentioned, critical theory. You may be familiar with him, though. That's that was kind of his area of scholarship. Well, this guy, Mark Fisher. Okay. Okay. I'm not familiar with him. I not that name, but I'm. Sorry. Okay. Have, have you ever heard of Goldsmiths in um, London? Uh, no. no. I'm sorry. I know. I you don't need I'm to apologize. It's it's not it's not, a, it's not a test. It's just no, uh, I know. I know. just I know. trying to you know talk about something that we've yeah. I've oh. probably heard some of the ideas, but I'm writing down these names anyway, so I'm going to later. But I mean, but one of his big points, and, and I actually came upon him by this guy who was uh, Matt something, I can't think of his last name, who, was, uh, who did some writing for Matt in America. And, and he was very big about how politicizing mental health, saying about that, that and how often how it's, you know, observe how mental health has been intentionally depoliticized to sort of preserve the kind of, yeah, the same material conditions or, or that don't affect the uh, the 1%. Kind of, that's basically it. Right, right. Yeah. And I guess a part of the idea that the idea of the title is the idea that capitalism is so entrenched in our, our thinking that people feel that there is, I think that the, the, the subheading of it is, is capitalism realism is, is there any alternative, something of that nature? Yeah. You mean an alternative to capitalism? Yeah. That it's just, we're so entrenched in it that most people can't really see any alternative. There. Yeah. And actually if you, so I actually 
have something really interesting about this particular topic, but uh-huh. it's a post written by my co-moderator in Psychotherapy Leftist. Okay. It's like two paragraphs. It'll probably make me take me like a minute and a half. To yeah, read. sure. If I read it to you. Yeah, yeah, I sure. Think, I think it is really, really fabulously written. So this post is actually titled, How Do We Feel About Communism? It's written by an LMFT with a master's. They're talking about how they have skimmed over some theory recently. They talk about Lenin a little bit, but here, so this is the really great part. What I'm trying to say is that it's very difficult to know if, quote, communism is better for mental health, quote, because the only examples we have have been short-lived and were brutally crushed by capitalism, mainly the U.S. and its allies. On a systemic level, it's pretty obvious to me that at this point that capitalism, a dictatorship of profit over people, is built to be against good mental health. Mental health is centrally about connectivity. You are on good terms with and trust and can mutually rely on your families, your family, neighbors, and friends. There are basic common interests among you and the rest of the people, and you all work to some degree toward common goals. Under capitalism, since individuals are reduced as much as possible to units of capital accumulation, how much value can you move upward into the pockets of owners and shareholders? There's inevitable competition against everyone else. You may become a collective as a couple or a family, or you can even incorporate as a nonprofit and get a handful of, co- of people who wish to, quote, do good through that. But each of these units is still having to compete in the system of capital accumulation. Everyone is careful under this dictatorship as to not get fired or evicted, to not give ammunition to neighbors or coworkers, to let anyone know how you're trying or planning to climb the ladder above them or against them, because they can't know your methods and not everyone can win. It's an antisocial game, and the more others lose, the more you may be able to win. A little bit more. This in every imaginable way is bad for mental health. And so I wish we could conceptualize the optimal scenario of connectivity, freedom, cooperation, unity among the people. I'm starting to think that communist thinkers and revolutionaries over the last century likely had these concepts pretty well thought out. But but because they challenged capitalism with such seriousness to the point of actually threatening the capitalist order, almost none of us have ever read or even thought of reading their works. So most of us just associate the word communism with genocide, murder, prisons, famines, propaganda, deceit, power over, control over, militarism, violence. And we therefore completely forget, very conveniently, that the capitalist U.S. state has been actively engaging in every single one of these terrible practices against its own people and billions of others on a global scale for entire lifetimes. Interesting psychological effects this all must be having on us. How does that make you feel? I'm noticing our time is up. Your call pay is $40. Thank you. See you next week. Yeah, no, it was very, it was definitely a tour, tour de force. One of the things I, I wrote a little bit that, that, that struck me early on in, in, the, in the words that you read is that about, and I agree that cooperation and neutrality is, is pro-mental health. However, but especially with the, the, the SP, SPMI, the, uh, that groups and, and the more the more over in that spectrum you get, everything becomes about your, your being a good mental health patient if you're compliant. And it's sort of compliant, right. obeying authority seems to be often those settings, good mental health. And even in, even if you get into like, speaking of graduate school, there's also a certain level of obeying authority that's seen as a being, it's being a good graduate student, but it's, oh, there's these, a lot of these I, messages. Yeah, messages of of being compliant, and and I think sometimes, um, yeah, but I guess on a, but being compliant is sort of in a way cooperating with authority, but sometimes that 
can go against your fellow humans. So it's, anyway. Exactly. Well, and and in my context in grad school, they, it gets framed as, oh, well, cooperating with with the authority here is inherently good for your clients. So if you're <sighs> not doing that, then you're inherently not serving your clients. And then like that introduces a whole new level of like, oh yeah, for me because I, this is going to be the first time I've ever actually worked with clients in this setting anyway. Right. So yeah. Well, I. I, I... Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, often cooperating with authority uh, in those contexts are often they don't match up with your client's best interests. But however, if you don't often those settings, if you don't cooperate with the authority, then going back to I think there's something in in the the statement about this that you'll often you're in jeopardy of getting fired. And uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I. I've I have been fired for crying in the bathroom at work. Oh wow. That's literally what I was fired for because I was because they told me that they saw me crying. Because oh, that's ridiculous. Upset. Not because I was bad with customers or because I didn't do my job, but because I got upset because I was hurt by something my manager said to me and I went and privately processed it to myself. Like that is uh, you know or <laughs> or just this morning I'm in I'm in the the homeless subreddit on Reddit just this morning, somebody says, I worked a job. My first day went great. But at the end of the day, they fired me because they found out I'm homeless. And it's like, how are you supposed to, how, how is this even possible? It's, it's impossible for anybody to, I mean, yeah, it's just, I don't know where I was going with that. But what uh, you said reminded me of. Okay, no, no problem. I mean, I was going to say. Uh, you end up having to eat yourself. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're trying to, your, your diagnosis that I was diagnosed. Uh, diagnosed with uh, ADD at an early age. I think there's some truth to it, but I, I don't like to really, I don't really like to really often high lead with that as an identity. But uh, absolutely, but, well, because uh, that just basically meant that you know you were determined to not be compliant with the expectations of the classroom, which in itself is a new that you know. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> institutionalized schooling is not an old. This is not a you know something that we naturally gravitate toward this is a new system that has been set up in the last what 200 years of that is that was that was formulated initially to make children be able to sit still in one place and prepare them for factory work that is how we came to our current schooling system that's how we got to this to this this model of schooling that we currently have so it absolutely naturally follows that any kind of deviation from sitting still in one place for hours at a time, listening, being still, not acting like a child <laughs> would be pathologized, right? right? Like it makes perfect sense. And this is the logic of, of, of these systems. I, I wanted to, was, we're getting a little bit thrown towards the end of uh, the time here, but this did, I saw in the, I believe I saw in the, in the subreddit, or it could have been in the radical mental health. I think I saw in the leftist one. This is something I've thought of before, and somebody posted, I believe it was about a, a labor union for nurses and about, about the idea of having one for mental health workers. And it's an idea I've had in my head, but I've never really done, done anything with it. I'm wondering, any ideas about what do you think, um, your thoughts about a, a mental health label, labor a worker labor union? I am so on board with that. I am actually super, super excited and proud 
to say and tell you that I am a unionized worker. The union just yesterday, finally, after 15 months of bargaining, got our agreement uh, ratified. So wow. just now we are in 2020, we have unionized. And this is only like two divisions of our of the larger agency I work with. Wow. Um, and they have been fighting tooth and nail the entire freaking way. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's something that needs to happen. I actually was just earlier this morning, I saw a map of of union membership of the US. And I was like, you know, I see all this stuff about unions, you know, coming back and being a, being in the news all the time. And I look at this map and it's like, the highest percentages are California, Oregon, and Washington. And I'm like, wow, like, okay. So I must be, I'm trying to sec- double check myself and be like, okay, is this really as big of a thing as I think it is? Or is it just kind of my local community? As for a separate union for mental health workers, I don't, I'm not super experienced with unions. Honestly, uh, I haven't had a ton of time to like really contribute to the organizing process at my work beyond just trying to popularize. But it. who is your union comprised of? So our union is actually Ask Me. And I have heard of, I mean, some other healthcare workers also have joined like SEIU. I've okay. been trying to, I, I want to also join IWW, but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I think it's a cool idea to have a separate union, but at the same time, like, I think it's, there's a lot of value in having a unified work or unified union, you know, the right. big union, the each one teach one, the IWW, that kind of stuff. Um, okay. So, I mean, maybe, maybe have a separate one for mental health but still encourage everybody to have dual membership in IWW. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of different, I guess, pieces of it. But, but I mean, I find in my experience, pr- primarily, it's it's just generally the, it's kind of most people just get burnt out of the, the agency work. And then just, I mean, I do all, I don't do any agency work anymore either. And just, just jump into the private practice. And, but this kind of is a blend of the two is another idea I've had. And, and I've, I got excited about it, but I've never really done anything with it, but more of a, and I think it could kind of blend a little bit more, operate more in the private practice realm, uh, like a mental health uh, worker cooperative. Yeah. I will be honest with you. I am super not knowledgeable about it, but the other mod of Psychotherapy Leftists, I think is really interested in that. Okay, um, cool. I can't really speak to it because I'll be honest with you, private practice is like so not my thing. I love, right. agen- I love agency work <laughs> because I, I'm lucky to work at a really large agency. So I've been able to have several different positions. So it's it's not easy or it's hard for me to get like burnt out on any one. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I think definitely psychiatric rehab lends yeah. itself much more to an agency than a private practice. I mean, I think that's definitely an exciting, that is a really thing that I would love to do more of. Yeah, I remember like, and I think there was an indication on the sub. I think it was the same one, or could be a different one. I have to, I'll have to like, go re- revisit it. But there was, a, I was looking at various websites a couple of years ago about different worker-owned cooperatives, and I found a mental health psychotherapy one in Colorado, but it was sort of defunct, and it, I couldn't really get any information why it didn't wasn't really successful. It just seems like it's like. This is just my observation. In general, it's just to go against the grain just requ- seems to require a lot much more work. It's just easier just to do the kind of regular LLC uh, or sole proprietor. That's because that's how we have to, I mean, you know, these things take resources. And if you have to accumulate your resources in a very specific prescribed kind of way, then you're going to have a limited number of ways that you can organize. So, I mean, that makes perfect sense. The 
Oh, I was going to say, yeah. And there's definitely always a, you know, I feel like, I feel like the nonprofit agency has kind of become a no longer really very nonprofit ish. (laughs) Oh, sure. Even if they don't make a profit, they still can, they sure do act like it, you know, right. Um, my nonprofit, you know, I, I received an email the other day and it was, you know, check out this, this webinar for $50 on how to start your own nonprofit. And it, and the right. description was like, turn your idea into a thriving business. Right. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, do you uh, understand the meaning of that word? Like, so, I mean, but, but really that's, that's revealing. Well, I mean, all, all, often, I mean, in practice, it's not really about not profit. It's just really about the in most cases, just about the tax structure and having the board, a board of uh, board of trust, or I think a board, a board, and having the the tax ex- tax exemption. That seems in most cases that's the, that's all the nonprofit really means. Exactly. Well, uh, yeah, and it doesn't mean anything. Or the power is structured, how the management is organized, how the system is structured, or anything like that. So, yeah, it's. Yeah. Hmm. Wild. Well, anyway, I'm just uh, getting a little bit uh, pressed for time here, but uh, Jennifer, yeah, thanks a lot for chatting with me. And I mean, I can, I'll be happy to send you the recording uh, if you have anything you want changed to it before I, I, I post it. It's, uh, it's fine. Sure. That would be great. Yeah. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been exciting. Yeah, and feel free to, I mean, reach out to me afterwards if you have any anything else you wanted to share or questions. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe I'll pass along a name of somebody interested in chatting with you.